The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everyone? Welcome into episode 12 of season two of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have a jam-packed episode this week, so I'm going to get straight to the point. But first of all, let's thank Eddie Avakian for his intro beat. Eddie says, this is a version of a groove that I heard drumming great Peter Thomas describe in an interview. He played two different versions of it, one for Los Lobos Whiskey Trail and another for Squeeze Third Rail. When I heard it, I thought it was pure fire. This is my take on it. It's a little faster than either of those with different fill accents, but the concept is the same. The concept is you play a jazz swing pattern with the right and play straight ace with the snare accenting the two and a four. It's simple, but man, does it rock in a great left-hand workout. So the gear that Eddie is using is a 1980 Ludwig Black Beauty 6 amp by 14 that I got as a gift from my father back in 1981. Man, that's a special drum right there. Um, I don't think there's many of those out there in existence. The kit is a late 60s Rogers Holiday. The ride is a Minel Byzance 22-inch Extra Dry. Eddie's recording using an Apollo X8P preamp, SM57 snare mic. Very little EQ, but some compression on the room mics only. Awesome, man. Thanks, Eddie, for sending that in. That's a super cool groove. I've got to work that one up myself. Um, if anyone wants to send your intro beats, I only have a few here. So send your beats over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you're playing, what the concept is, and we'll get you featured on the show. All right, what's new this week? First off, a reminder, if you haven't already, head over to stickshed.com and set up an account. That's our website where it's focused solely on drumsticks, mallets, brushes, and accessories. We should have pretty much everything, but let us know if you if you're something you're looking for that we don't have. We'll see if we can get it for you. That's stickshed.com. If you haven't seen it yet, the new documentary on bassist Ron Carter is out. It is absolutely amazing. It is called Finding the Right Notes. Highly recommend it. I believe it is streaming for free on PBS here in the States, but it should also be available pretty much anywhere. Um, Obviously, it's not a drummer documentary, but Ron has played on more jazz records than any bassist ever in the history of the instruments. So... It's really fascinating. It kind of chronicles more recent. I guess it was supposed to be up leading up to his 80th birthday and then COVID hit and then they had to kind of fill in the gaps before they could get to that final celebration. Um, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely remarkable. It sent me down a wormhole of investigating the records that I didn't know that he played on. Of course, I knew about the Miles Davis Quintet and some of the other stuff after that, like Freddie Hubbard's Red Clay. But there's so many records, and some of the more recent stuff that he's been on is just absolutely fantastic. Ron did a lot of duets and trio records with no drums. So if you need some stuff to practice to, um, here's a few that I found to be really, really cool. First of all, there's one called Golden Striker. That's a trio with Russell Malone on guitar and Donald Vega on piano. There's another one called Remember Love, which is a duo record with Houston Person on saxophone. And then the third one that is absolutely amazing is called Alone Together with guitarist Jim Hall. All three of those have like a selection of standards and some originals. 
Um, if you want to just kind of get a vibe of how to play with Ron Carter, definitely start there. Those are incredible records. Again, that's Golden Striker, Remember Love, and Alone Together. All right, let's get over to our main topic. All right, last week was our first in the series of taking a look at different wood species snare drums. That was our overview with Chris Carr at Bucks County, who was kind enough to make us six drums to check out. This week, we are going to take a close look at three of the six. I figured instead of just doing a blindfold test out of the gate, we should probably educate ourselves on what do these drums sound like when we know what they are. So this week, we're going to look at what I think of being the three most common wood species drums. We've got maple, we've got birch, and we've got walnut. So we're going to start with maple, which is probably the most common um, wood species in drums. Again, all of these are eight ply. They're all five and a half by 14. They have eight lugs, single point lugs, triple flange hoops, Evans G1 coated batter, clear 300, um, 16 wires. And I, what I did was I tuned all of these identically. I started high, which was a fundamental note of F sharp, I believe. No, G sharp. And then I just took it down a half step and demoed it. So you hear it with the snares off, snares on, a simple groove. And then I repeat the process through all the different tunings. I think I went all the way down to a C sharp. So we're getting like a, what is that? A fifth of um, a range here. And so you can kind of hear, you know, where does the drum kind of transform into something else? Where does you really hear what the drum sounds like? What, what tunings give you the most like characteristics of the wood? And then at the end, I just retuned each drum up to what I thought was like the, the where the drum had the most kind of natural vibe. So once I got all the way down to super low, I just started tuning it up until I found the spot where like, that's it, that's a cool, that's a cool vibe, let's leave it there. Rather than going super high and tuning it down, I started from the bottom to kind of find the lower, you know, essence of what the drum could do. All right, so let's get to the maple drum. I've got the drum right here, um, natural finish, beautiful drum. So I wrote on the back of these tags what the hardness is. So the maple is actually the hardest wood of these six. It is 1450 on the Jenka hardness scale. What does that mean? I mean, I'm now learning after talking to Chris and experimenting, hardness is important. Um, I guess it ultimately affects the pitch, the natural pitch of the drum. But what's also important is the grain structure and the porosity. Is it an open grain? Is it a closed grain? This looks to be fairly closed. It's pretty smooth. You can see, I don't know if you can see it in this camera, but you can see some of the grain, but it's, it's pretty smooth, it's pretty tight. Um, so what did that translate to? I'm finding that the tighter the grain, the longer the resonance. The more open the grain, which we'll hear in some of the drums next week, the shorter the resonance. Other than that, um, well, let's just take a listen. So here's the 5 by 14 maple drum, high to low.
Now, here's where I found that day when I was making this demo that this maple drum sounded best. Okay, now that your ear is tuned to the maple drum, let's sh uh, shift over to the birch drum. Got it here, give me one second. All right, the birch drum is the second hardest of the drums that we checked out for this, this um, comparison, 1260 on the Janka hardness scale. Again, what does that mean? I'm not really sure that the hardness is important as I once thought it was, but the theory is the harder, the higher the natural resonance of the shell. The grain is also pretty closed and tight. Yeah, if you can see, it's not, you know, there's they're pretty tight stripes in the grain in this one. So again, I think that means more resonance, just more tone in general, um, longer decay. But yeah, let's check out the birch drum, high to low.
here is where on that day I felt that this burst drum sounded best. Okay, so we've checked out probably the two most common wood species, maple and birch. The third most common is kind of a toss-up, but I felt like walnut would be the one that, that we see most often. So here's the walnut drum. Let me grab it. You can see here, probably not, but it feels like a, it's a pretty, there's a little bit more porosity. I can tell that there's, you know, it's just a little bit um, a rougher feel. I guess that's how you would describe porosity. The grain feels pretty tight. Um, but there is some kind of distance between the grain a bit. Definitely wider than, than the birch or the maple and a little bit more porous, possibly. The hardness is 1010 on the Janka scale. Let's check out walnut, high to low.
All right, now here is where I felt that the walnut drum sounded best on that particular day in that room with that vibe. All right, there you have it. I'll let you kind of make your your um, rankings on which you like best so far. Next week, we will get into, what do we have? We have oak, we have cherry, and we have ash. Maybe slightly less common um, timbers for snare drums. So just little notes on my experience, which is pretty funny. The birch was the one I thought like, this is the best of these three. The maple was like, this drum could do anything. I could use this and not need any other drum. The walnut was the one that gave me the most vibe. I felt like I had the most fun playing it. So take it for what it's worth. I guess if I had to pick one, I couldn't because they each did something different to me as a player. Maple will probably be the one if someone said, come to the studio, bring one drum, I might bring the maple or the birch. Um, if I knew it was going to be something where we get to be more creative and kind of go, you know, play, play a little bit more, you know, free, or more, you know, not just playing beats and fills. Maybe I'll go with the walnut because it just inspired me to be a little bit, little bit more creative. I don't know. Let's wait till next week and check out the oak, the ash, and the cherry. Until then, let's move on to our featured artist. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store. Celebrating its 40th year in business, Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. This week, we have the first part of our interview with the incredible Zach Danziger. Zach has just recently finished up a little bit of a tour with his new, I don't even know what you would call it, Wednesday Night Titans. It's combining um, pro wrestling and very creative, adventurous, electronic jazz fusion music. Um, Zach has always been one step ahead of everyone else, always thinking outside of the box. Um, from, gosh, his boomish group back with Tim LaFave, which was, a again, a more of a performance art ensemble. Mr. Barrington. I mean, everything he's ever done has been um, unexpected and really, really cool. And he also plays the drums absolutely, ridiculously amazing. So uh, David Throckmorton is doing the interview. So let's get over to David Throckmorton and Zach Danziger. So what's up with you, man? How, how's everything on your end? Everything's going pretty well. Um, I'm in another scramble mode because I'm going out on the road again next week with my project, the, the Wednesday Night Titans project. And whenever that yeah. ramps up, starts off pretty calm in my head. And as the dates close in, it's like I'm reconfiguring how I do everything. And uh, I try to, like, I even get bored of my own setup, you know? So, like, yeah, if I can introduce a new piece of gear or a new way of doing something, it makes it more, it's like that's a form of improvising for me you know like if i can just uh, have something in the equipment 
present itself where it feels like it's not the same instrument as it was the last time I did it. I enjoy right. that. But um, but then there's the stress of, okay, now I got to, it's almost like you have an apartment and you're like, oh, the couch really should go on the other side of the room and that big armoire should go here. I know there'd be more space if I did that. And you're like, all right, but to do that, you're going to have to wreck your apartment, you know, like eventually in the end yeah. it'll work out. But that during part, do we really want to do that? And that's what happens before these tours. I kind of um, say, hey, I have an idea. Like I've been messing around with a bunch of different trigger interfaces and coming to realize, and maybe someone can come to my rescue here, but coming to realize that I do not believe that a product exists that does what I'm asking it to do. And I'm not asking yeah. it to do much. Right. But nothing exists. And it's just like, yeah, wow. I, I, I just heard a, uh, I found a podcast that you did some drummer, I think he was an LA guy um, from 2016, and you were you were kind of hinting at that that exact thing that you were hoping to find some gear that did what you wanted to do. And, and, and we're not talking about anything that specific. I'll tell you flat yeah. out what it is for all the the nerdy guys and the and, you know the four people watching this. But uh, basically, <laughs> um, I want every trigger and every and every pad on on. I, I think I want a pad module. In other words, I want mm -hmm. a pad module. I don't want a trigger interface. I've uh, decided I think I want it like, uh, you know, not to name brands, but, the, you know, with the strikable surfaces, but also the sure. trigger ends. Okay. Yeah. And all I want, and maybe I'm not finding the buried page, but it sure doesn't seem like it. I want to be able to set the MIDI channel per pad and per trigger. And you, it's just a global setting for everything. And there's a reason why I need that. Yeah, it's a little more convoluted, but to do what I do, I need that feature. And uh, certain modules have that feature, but not one of these sort of plug and play pad things that have triggers in the back. There's not enough um, customization of those functions. And so, like, I have several brands of stuff and I'm pulling them out. And I'm like, hey, this this pad feels great. It mounts nicely. I can get this, uh, you know, uh, pads feel pretty good. They trigger pretty well. And it's like up, oh, but it doesn't do that. And then my other yeah. thing does that, but it has no paths. And the other thing doesn't trigger very well and has no custom. I mean, it's like, how hard could this be? It's 2022. You know, right. I think sure. the problem with companies is they don't talk to actually the right people who are doing stuff that pushes right. the envelope enough because to build a feature like that in, it's not like saying I want it to make toast for me in the morning. It's just saying sure. it's, a, it's like probably a couple lines of software called built built into these systems that they can implement in two seconds. They just never thought that that could be needed, you know? Yeah. And I just wish people making products would uh, consult the right people for it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope you can find that as eventually to make your life a little easier. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm jerry-rigging stuff. But anyway. Yeah. So what are well, we man, talking about here? Yeah. Oh, man, I just figured I'd, you know, Mike has me and another friend of mine guest hosting some of these uh, Trump Candy podcasts. So I'm just reaching out to some guys that I know I know a little bit. I mean, I don't know you super well, but we've. I was a fan as a kid, even though you're not much older than me. Yeah, don't, a, don't a, a me to be years. a senior citizen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I just wanted to go through some of your past and try to get up into what we were just talking about some of the newer project projects and just yeah. uh shoot the, the stuff a little bit as they say That's um cool. keep it clean for the kids i'll try um so i will say uh i think the first thing and i, I promise i won't try to dwell too much in like the the distant past I won't but i think I, I think i first heard you on uh 
on that Chuck Loeb record, um, I think it was called Life Colors, like way back when. Was that your first, one of your first kind of, you know? One of the first records I did for sure. Uh, how's the connection yeah. right now? Is, is it sputtering a little good. bit? Are we good? We're good? No, I feel good. Sure. You feel good. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, that was one of the first, uh, I think I'd done two or three or four Man, yeah, probably a few smaller albums before that, you know. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the first, at least, ones that was going to get listened to. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Do, yeah. do Do you remember how old you were when when you did that record? I think I was seventeen. Wow. Maybe man. sixteen. That's no, not ridiculous. 16, probably seventeen. Okay. Yeah. What What year was that? Like late eighties. Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Okay. Yeah. So I remember you saying. In an interview, I just the same interview I was just talking about. You mentioned to the the, uh, the guy that um, you talked about seeing Chick's band when the Electric Band was the trio with, with Weckl, and how that was a big a big thing for you. But it's strange to me because I was a fan of all that same stuff as you were, as well as a fan of your, yours. But it's like it seems like if you just heard that, and what could that have been eighty five into eighty six? I mean. Two or three years later, you're you're playing on a ridiculously high level, you know, as a such a young player. I mean, when when you first heard the Electric Band live, were, were, how was your playing then? Were you were you playing on a really high level then, or did, or did over that next few years did you make a real a real growth spurt in, in your playing? Boy, that is a good question. When I saw the electric band, I was 14. So, I mean, I don't, you know, these days kids are already with a career by 14, right? But um, right. back in our day, there weren't a lot of 14-year-old drummers working professionally. I was working professionally, but I mean, I mean, I feel like I've made a great growth spurt in the last year and a half right now. If you sure. Know so it's like, it, yeah. how do you measure it? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I could play. I could play at 14 and 15, but as, you know. Yeah. I, you know, looking back on it, Here's the thing, and people have told me this over the years, and it just sadly is one of those things you have to get to that point where you're that that age where you can go, wow, I know exactly what these people were telling me. You know what I mean? Like I was definitely precocious and I could I could play, but truly, I don't care what anyone says, you can't have a certain depth in your playing at a young age. I mean, you can right. have, you can have a certain depth. You can't have the depth you're going to have when you're 20 years beyond that. That's, you know, it's all sure. relative. When people were just like, you know, I, I want to hear you become you one day and have your own voice and, 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 and you feel the life experiences in every backbeat. Yeah. I, I was kind of like thinking to myself, what the hell are you talking about? I'm, I'm seasoned. I'm, I, I have that in my playing and I can sure. tell you maybe it's, Maybe I, it's easy for me to see it now because I'm looking for that. But everyone who said that was dead on, you know, so like it's hard to hear a young, precocious musician, no matter how forward thinking they might be. And there's a ton of them out there. You just can't have what you're going to have 10 or 15 years later. It's, it's any ball player too, you know, LeBron James sure. could never do something 20 years ago in a certain way. And yeah. now he can't do things now that he could do to, it's vice versa. So it switches. Totally. Overall, well, that was my point. He's a better it's, ball player. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're playing, yeah, the same way you just said about LeBron, there are things in your playing now that you don't have that you once had in, in a way. I mean, not that I've heard you slip 
technically or facility wise. But I mean, I know I don't play the same as I did when I was 20, you know, or, or 25 even, or or whatever the age was. Um, yeah. But I, I'll say this though, I mean, and not that I prepare a lot for any of these interviews, but I went back yesterday and I, I hadn't heard this record, definitely not with headphones on for probably 20 years or so, but I re-listened I re to the first Kranz record, the Long To Be Loose record. It's like a blast from the past. And it's funny, like hearing it with like new ears, like you don't hear it for so long. A record I've heard so much in my life, but after such a long break, I was just giggling at myself like, oh, that that's just a four bar phrase there. I used to not even know what they were doing. I, I could sing it, I could play along to it, but some of the stuff reveals itself in a different way now. But my point is, hearing that again yesterday, mm -hmm. what was that, almost 30 years ago, for God's sake. Holy um, not, not to right. Not to date you, <laughs> but it's wow. like, man, the, the, the playing is really mature. And I mean, it's youthful and, and, and it's exciting, but there's a maturity, I think, that you, you were playing with those at that young age with like the Chuck Loeb record balance as well. Like, yeah. I think you're playing really mature for for such a young age. Um, I'm not sure what the question is here, but um, how much of that, like playing in those situations, playing with guys like that, um, did you feel like big jumps in your playing? Just well, yeah. Through the, the yeah. That that's that's really the key. I mean, sadly, in this day and age, people don't interact in any way, shape, or form in the same ways they used to musically. Uh, in person, uh, apparently the, the the younger generation they don't like talking on the telephone. For what I hear, I enjoy right, the phone yeah. call when you know in its right place. But it's like same with music. It's okay to be a and I love. Don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of these drummers who are in their home studio, seemingly or their bedrooms or whatever they're doing. I'm I'm just as inspired by watching and hearing that as I were some of my favorite musicians that you go hear in clubs. But uh, I'm just yeah. uh, making a point that it's not the same way of conducting ourselves anymore. Sure, there's bands that tour and people are playing all the time, but there's a lot of people who might go their whole career, quote unquote, with barely playing with anyone, you know? Yeah, it's virtual, right. Virtual, whatever you want to call it. They're playing to tracks. They're giving clinics. They're not really in groups like really interacting over a course of time with a bunch of people and developing a musical relationship, you know, and I'm not saying right. one's better than the other, but they're certainly different, you know? So for me, I, I know that I play the way I do because I was with real human beings in a room and there's something that comes with real interaction rather than if it's just like a lot of times people do things where they'll lay down a drum part send it to a bass player. I've done albums like this, you know, for my own stuff. Sure. Bass player plays keyboard back in, and there's an art to doing that well too. And I really like the creative process of that, but it's different than when you're really in the moment. Yeah. Playing off of somebody. Um, that doesn't mean even improvise, but just time feel wise, you know, sure, like sure. playing off of somebody who's taking a solo, just how, how does it sit with the time and, and, how do you push and pull with the other musicians? That's something that happens when you play with other people. And yeah, I, I think just due to the way the world is, uh, a lot of upcoming musicians don't get the chance to do that as much. And again, I don't think it's better or worse. It's just different. Yeah, sure. I agree. Yeah. Um, do you think, um, I don't know, like uh, when I first kind of met you, a, a friend of mine's little sister went to a, 
a camp that you were teaching at, and I was that. Um, this girl named Bess Dunleavy. Um, what camp would she, that have been? I think it might have been the Yamaha thing if they did that, like a Yamaha summer camp, maybe. Um, okay. This would have been back in those days. And I wrote you a letter just telling you I liked your drumming, and then included a phone number. You you eventually called me, and we struck up a little bit of a yeah, I remember that a, con a connection. And I, and I came and saw you in Philly with Wayne's band, which was just great to see it in person and not just hear the record. Um, where am I going with this? But, um, and then I think the next time, the next phase of seeing you would have been um, when I got, I was playing, I had just joined Maynard Ferguson's band in the late nineties. And we ran, I ran into you at the NAMM show when you were kind of introducing the, the remix line for Zildjian. 1997 then, yeah. I think that was 98. 98, 98, yeah. And, and um, so we, I talked to you kind of just catching up. What are you doing? You started telling me about all this jungle drum and bass stuff, which I wasn't oh, yeah. really that familiar with at the time. I was more of a hip hop guy. And um, so that turned me on to a nice new style of music to, to look for records when I was touring for a couple of years there with Maynard's band yeah, as a, as a absolutely. young drummer. Um, so um, what led you to... I mean, I know what led you to, to, to check that music out, but um, you, you kind of had this relationship with Tim Lefave yeah. that you that you guys played. I guess you had that band Bluth as well. Uh, yes. And that did that just kind of change into to the Boomish project? Is that eventually you guys just found a new direction and just kind of abandoned one for the other in a way? Yeah, you, you know, again, an astute observation. And one thing I never even really thought about. Yeah, we... I, I, me and Tim and uh, another great drummer named Pete Davenport were all buddies, and we we were of the mindset of, you know, I've always wanted to infuse comedy and music, and boy, as you know, that's never changed with me, you know. So since I started doing mm -hmm. things that had a comedic undertone, it hasn't stopped, you know. So um, people who think that I'm doing anything new in that realm need to go back 20 30 years i i've only been doing that you know so it's like yeah. maybe i should stop doing that uh maybe that's what i gotta do but um me tim and pete davenport were were good friends and we we were always joking around and hanging out and we were just you know the, the, the more we could laugh in a given night the better and just we decided we're gonna make an album that reflects that you know yeah and so we did that uh, it was called blue I, I don't even know if you can find it anymore i do know that um some people are still recently calling me saying they've got it on heavy rotation. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, it's a waste of your time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. No, there, there's a lot of seeds of stuff that I built upon in my prior and future works um, conceptually on that album that I draw from to this day, just things, yeah. how things are constructed and, and how time is played and, and all that. But then boomish, what happened was, huh? I, I discovered drum and bass through my friend Ken McAuliffe during the this blue sort of like brainstorming for that album. You know what I mean? And and I was like, check this out. And I wanted to interject a lot of that into the yeah. blue album. And as we did, we did maybe one or two things that had it. But so then I was like thinking, we got to make a whole dedicated thing of this. And since a lot of drum and bass was drum and bass, I I veered off with Tim and we spawned mm. Boomish um for a bunch of years but then that became comedic as well eventually with a variety right. show element and all that so uh but yeah the, it, it was a transition you're right from from the blue stuff to uh to the boomer stuff 
the, the, these transitions that you have with you know saying that you know boomish ended up becoming this variety show of sorts as she just said it's like is that just a um a restlessness that that, that one has you're just like ah i just want to tired of doing the same thing even though it might be over a short few year period um is that a natural thing you think i mean i have some of that too like i think for me it's more like i can almost be over inspired all the time where right. if i were to hear any any drummer that i love or not just drummer even just music without real drums as well if i were to hear paul motion play one day and i love that so much i'm like hey, i just want to play like this and then yes, if i yeah. hear i could hear an old schofield record with dennis and be like man it'll be fun to just play these tunes and just play grooves and play strong like that or any anything or hear an earth wind and fire record i want to just play grooves all day or hear right. the, the Kranz band and want to play all this rhythm you know <laughs> you know what i mean just yeah. anything I, i'm just i'm just dropping any style it could be anything no i'm with you i'm with you but i, I mean I for you is it, is it just you get you ready for a change all the time? I think, honestly, it might be a little more subtle than that. It's almost like, I mean, you know, you, I have an end vision. Yeah. But that end vision is, is so multi-tiered and multifaceted that I can't get to it all at once. So I have to layer, you know what I mean? So it's like, all right, I'll do stuff where I'm sampling audio. That was like in the 90s. And then I'm like, I want to sample video. Now I want to trigger video. Now I want to trigger video and improvise it. Now I want to trigger and improvise it and then redo it as this. Now I want to involve my love of food with all this. Now I want to yeah. bring that in back into the, like, it's like I've already had those stages, but I couldn't do them all at once. They take a long time to figure out and implement. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the project I'm doing now, Wednesday Night Titans, it is to me in its infant stages conceptually of what I already know I want it to be, but it's going to take hard work, planning, extra talent that I don't have from, from outside help, extra resources, yeah. financial and otherwise to get there. But when someone sees it and goes, wow, you're not doing this anymore. You're doing it with that. It's like, no, I always wanted to do that. I just had to get there, you know? So yeah, well, I, I'm I, thinking I, steps I, ahead, you know, when I saw you in Pittsburgh with Donnie, however many years ago that was, four years ago or so, I remember just catching up a little with you and I, I referenced um, a moment I heard you on the, uh, the I'd Hit That podcast. Yeah. And you and the host, I forget his name, you guys were joking no, about wrestling. Yeah, you were, you were joking about wrestling. <laughs> and I referenced it, how I thought it was hysterical. You guys were talking about all these wrestlers from our childhood. Right. And you were, and you were talking about Kim Chi, who was... Kamala's handler and I just but you didn't come up with the name handler and I just thought that was so hysterical I brought it up to you and then you immediately hit me back with I actually have a wrestling project I'm about to do and it's oh. like and I almost didn't even believe you I'm like man Zach's just a little out there and he's just goofing around with me and playing with me and then what do you know a year later I see you guys wearing lucha masks and playing shows really doing that like yeah. so, th so there is that that level of, I don't know what you would call it, humor or or uh, whatever mixed yeah, with I don't music. Know what you call it either, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it makes me wonder. I mean, because I, I I lead a lot of projects, um, similarly like co-lead or lead bands. Yeah. And it's hard to to find the the strength or the the, the will to follow through with a lot of these projects that we're drawn to as 
as creative artists and as drummers, knowing that the audience has to be kind of small, even though I think a lot of things you do, you're so challenging uh, the art form and, and, and progressing it where people are almost forced to, to check it out. I mean, what, what is your thoughts on that? Like pushing the boundaries of trying these new things that haven't been done and... Uh... Yeah, that's a good question as well. I mean, listen, if someone said that I could go out on this tour and make, you know, $2,000 a night or $25,000 a night and all things being equal, you know what I'm saying? That just the money yeah. would be 10 times as much. Would I ever say, now? I'll take the 2000 no, sure. Of course. So of course I want to make as much money as I can with this and, and live and, and support myself um, as best I can and, and do well with whatever I'm doing. But that's not the motivator. You know what I mean? The first motivator right. is what do I want to present? And then can I how can not even how, but is what I'm doing viable beyond like the bizarro elements that it possesses? And can I maybe go, well, that's a little too out there. Or can I make a smart move? You know what I mean? Like, can we do this instead of this? And I like, I do like choice A and B equally, but B is going to get us further probably. So I'm going to choose B. I'm not going to spite myself. But sure. if A is the choice I want to make, and someone's like, if you do B, you're going to get way more acclaim. But B is not the vision in my head to a certain degree. Like if it's too far away from the vision, then I'm not doing it. I, mean, I just won't yeah. do it. You know, because I yeah, just know bold. how. Yeah, it's, it's just I can't help it. I can't sure. help it. it. It eats it eats at me so much to not to not be true to myself on every level. It it really is is destroying me from the inside out. So I yeah. have no <laughs> like yeah. you know, and I, and I I did a clinic a couple of years ago where I I was about to demonstrate all this video triggering stuff, and I can sense maybe no one knew what was about to happen. I can see it on their face. I said, "Listen, I want to let you know something." I do this and I put every ounce of my energy in life into this. You shouldn't watch this. I mean, if you're inspired by it, great, but you shouldn't watch this and feel like, oh, I just play in a blues band, you know, or I play yeah. in a cover band. I, I should have to do this because he's, he's doing this. No, I personally have to do this. Sure. They can do, you all can do whatever you want and should do whatever you want. I would almost love it's like almost like I don't know it sounds kind of crude ignorance is bliss but in a way like if if I was just happy going to um to play <laughs> you know on Bleecker Street with a with a top 40 group yeah I don't even know if top 40 exists anymore uh with whatever yeah. group right or a blues band or anything you know if that truly was was um satisfying and I was okay with that I swear I would trade in everything I'm doing right now to have that feeling Sure. Because it, it's an easier path. Sure, for sure. I'm not at peace with my, I'm at peace with the, with the, with the path, but I'm not at peace in, in, you know, in the day to day of it. I'm in peace with the, yeah. I gotta be doing this, but it is really a grind. I, I understand. I mean, I'm, I, I, I find myself being like in a way following in the footsteps of all these great musicians I love, whether they're drummers or not, that push the envelope and I, I you know I'm trying to do my best to do the same thing in some ways but I I've been met with that where people are like oh, I just want to hear you play the way you used to play when you had this yes you know fusion band or the when you had yes. this funky band and it's like I don't I don't want to do that so I I relate to what you're saying and it's tough um you know I live in Pittsburgh it's a smaller city we have a good scene here 
and there's a few of us that really are trying to do some creative things, but it's hard yeah. to find people to do that with. I mean, I think you're yeah. going to find some, there's probably more better players in New York. There's probably also more worse players. There's just more, more players more. in general. Yeah. Same with maybe LA as well. But some of these projects you've had, you know, going back to Boomish and Mr. Yeah. Barrington, and I don't know all of them. Um, you know, there was a period with uh, Ori Kane and Tim called Bedrock. Bedrock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thread line, I think. But these are all pretty small groups. I mean, especially the stuff where it's just been you and a bass player, like the stuff with Owen or the stuff with Kevin. Yes. How much of that is small for so you can make it work versus this is all we need. This is really just the vision. And it just happens to be two people. I mean, I thought you'd have a 10 piece band, you know? This is, yeah, I mean, sometimes your mind. You know, if there's like a, if it's in the middle of winter and there's a small little puddle on the corner of the street, your mind doesn't even go, can I jump over? You just know you can, you do it. If there's that bigger puddle, you start to think, can I make that? You know, and sometimes you take sure. a chance, but then there's times like, I just know I, I know I don't make that. You don't even entertain the thought. A lot of times I don't even entertain the thought of a 10 piece band because right now I just realized that the reality of that, there is no reality of that. So it doesn't even enter my brain. Sure. Uh, would I have a 10 piece band if I could? Uh, initial reaction to the current project is no. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to fit what I what I see in in the the, the blueprint for the group. But um, yeah, there's some surprises. Uh, you know, hopefully that I can implement just in terms of like more staff around us with what we do to make things better. Uh, the 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 lighting and the visuals being a, a notch or two or three beyond what I could ever do on my own. But again, that yeah. involves. And the, the, the thing about also keeping a small staff is you don't have to coordinate with 20 people's schedule. And like, I get it. Yeah. You know, can you make those dates? Can you do this? Hey, sure. let's meet for this. It, it's just harder. So it is going to yeah. be an easier endeavor on, on, uh, to keep it small if you can, which maybe, like I said, subliminally is why some of the things have been kept small. Yeah. Yeah. Th yeah that makes sense. I mean, even just playing a jazz gig, it's three people are easier to coordinate than five. So, I mean, I, I, I get that. Um, yeah. So do you consider, it's Wednesday Night Titans is the name of the group, right? Correct. I keep thinking Tuesday because I think the wrestling show in the 80s was well, called yeah, Tuesday Night and Titans. Yeah, and you know right? that. And, and, yeah. and the whole yeah. yeah, and, and very, very few people know this. Um, you know, nothing, at least everything I try to do has some, it's not hidden meaning, but has some thought behind it, okay? So someone could yeah. just be like, Wednesday Night Titans. All right, cool. All right, Wednesday Night Titans. Great. Uh -huh. They don't know why it's Wednesday Night Titans. Okay, it's Wednesday Night Titans. Well, not, almost no one knows why it's Wednesday Night Titans. The reason it's Wednesday right. Night Titans is because Nate Wood asked me to play a show with him at this club, New Blue. He asked me, did I want to... At that point, I was mainly doing a project with Owen Biddle called Edit Bunker, and we weren't mm -hmm. doing much at that time. So I was always thinking, what am I going to do next? And me and Kevin Scott had all, I'd worked together as sidemen with stuff and no, knew we wanted to do a project together. And we knew we wanted to make it a wrestling-centric project. And when Nate asked me, Zach, uh, do you want a, an opening slot at New Blue? I was like, I can't just say yes unless it's something I know I want to bring to it. Yeah. And I thought to myself, do I have enough time to whip this together? And the amount yeah. of time from having no tunes and no visuals, no video of this Wednesday Night Titans, from that point of saying, yes, I'll do the gig to the gig, I, I think it was like 23 days. Wow. I had to come up with a set of music and find the visual and write tunes in 23 days. Yeah. And I 
busted my ass with scouring YouTube videos and stuff. But the reason it was called Wednesday Night Titans is because I didn't have a name for the project, and the gig was on a Wednesday night. So I'm thinking, okay, okay. Wednesday night's a gig. I love the show Tuesday Night Titans. That was <laughs> so it's called Wednesday Night Titans. That's how it became Wednesday yeah. Night. I don't think it's the greatest name for a band because we sometimes go to gigs and it says now appearing tonight Titans. Yeah, they thought the Wednesday night was from some other gig we did. Sure. So it, it could come back to haunt us a little bit. But so, yeah, Wednesday Night Times, correct, is the name of the group. We will finish up our interview with Zach next week. But for now, let's shift over into a lesson. Welcome back to our free drum lesson series. This week, I want to cover the Swiss Army triplet and some ways you can improvise with it and find some unusual phrases with this rudiment. So the Swiss Army triplet, traditionally, it's a triplet, obviously, with a flam on the first note. The same hand plays the next note, and then the opposite hand plays the third note. Triplet. Right flam, right, left. Right, right, left. Right, right, left. Right, right. Or you can start with the left. Left, left, right. Left, left, right. Left, left, right. Bam. It's not an alternating rudiment by nature, and we're going to just not worry about alternating them in this lesson, but you could alternate. You could alternate like that. It just requires a different technique. But that's kind of not the point of this rudiment. The point of this rudiment is that it flows really, really well. Why does it flow really well? Because your hands, if you isolate the hands, you're just playing double strokes that are offset. So really, as fast as you can play a double stroke roll, you should be able to play Swiss Army triplets. because it's just double strokes displaced. That's what makes the room cool, it flows. Other hand. Now you don't always have to play, like everything else, these as triplets, you can play them in any subdivision. A good one is 16th notes. One E and a, two E and a, three E and a, four E and a. That creates a cross rhythm. Now here's a little exercise. Do four uh, Swiss Army triplets as sixteenth notes, and then two as sextuplets. So one E and a two E and a and a triplet triplet. One E and a two E and a three E and. Other hand. One E and a two E and a three E and a triplet triplet. One E and a two E and a three E and a triplet. And then you can just extend it. So do that for one bar. Repeat it and keep it going. So what happened? I extended it all the way to beat three of the second bar and then played four sextuplet Swiss Army triplets. One E and a two, three E and a four E and a one E and a two E and a triplet 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 triplet. Let's try that with a metronome. Let's see. We are at 100 BPM. One and two and three and four and.
makes sense. Do it again. One and two and three and four. So that's a good way to work on the Swiss Army triplet in longer phrases that extend over the bar line a little bit, so you're not always playing these as triplets that land on the eighth notes. Now let's kick up the difficulty here a bit. I want to bump it back down to 90. So if you analyze that first phrase, one E and a two E and a three E and a triplet, you've got four Swiss triplets as 60 notes and then two as sextuplets. You can move that around. So instead of ending with a sextuplet, start with it. So as long as you play four Swiss triplets as 16 notes, it's going to resolve back to one. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One. Right with the metronome. Keep us honest. Two. Three and four and one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Okay, so that was starting. You could that was two versions there. We were ending with the sextuplet or starting with the sextuplet, but there are two other spots you could put that sextuplet. Let's say put it right in between the 16th note version. So you're going to do two 16th note sex, uh, Swiss triplets, then play your sextuplets, and then two more 16th note uh, Swiss Army triplets. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now here's a little trick. Wherever that sextuplet starts is going to be where it ends on the next beat. So that is starting on the end of two. One E and a two E and it's going to end on the end of three. One E, two E and a. It's hard to count out loud because it crosses the beat a little bit, but two and three and four and one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So hopefully that makes sense. Wherever that sextuplet starts is where it's going to end. So that's if you go in between the two. So it's two 16th note Swiss triplets, two sextuplet Swiss triplets, and then two more 16th Swiss triplets. Things get really kind of hairy when you do it not on the even note. So let's do uh, three of the 16th note uh, Swiss triplets, then throw the sextuplet in, then you've got one more 16th note Swiss triplet left over. It's starting on the E, so that means it's going to end on the E of four. One, two, three, four. It's pretty crazy. Let's do it again. One, two, three.
So again, it helps to remember wherever that sextuplet starts, it's going to end on that same partial in the following quarter note. So I know it's starting on the E of three, it's going to end on the E of four. So I'm really just kind of listening to make sure that I resolve properly on the E of four, not worrying about the polyrhythm that happens between the E of three and the E of four. But you could map it out, but it's really just if you feel you're starting on the E of three, you're going to end on the E of four, and then you play three more sixteenth notes. Three. Pretty wild. Now there's one more to go. If you start, so you do one 16th note Swiss, then your sextuplet, then you have three more 16th note Swisses to go. So you're going to start on the uh. The uh of one, and you're going to end on the uh of two. Let's see what happens. Pretty wild, but again, know that where you start the partial is where it ends on the following partial. That's going to be the secret. So the last thing that I always do when I learn any kind of new phrasing idea is it kind of improvise with this idea of 16th note Swiss triplets and sextuplet Swiss triplets intermingling in the measure. One, two, three. I know there's a lot to uh, absorb there in just one short lesson, but again, take it super slow. Memorize that first phrase and then start with putting the sextuplet on beat one. That's the next easiest one. Putting it in between the twos would so be two sixteenths, sextuplet, two sixteenths. That's the next easiest one. The one that starts after one or three of the sixteenth note groupings, those are the trickiest. So be patient with yourself if you've never done this before. Internalize the phrase. It's going to do wonders for uh, locking your internal clock to the 16th note and getting that transition over to sextuplets. It's also just a fun, it's just a fun flowing rudiment that once you get fluid with it and fluent with it, um, there's a lot of cool things you can do over here on the drum set with it. So have fun, let us know what you think, and we'll see you next time. Now let's head over to Hawthorne Drum Shop to check out a vintage Camco kit. This is your baby, Camco. Tell me all the reasons that you love Camco. Oh. <laughs> I don't know, man. They're just uh, they're, they're my favorite, favorite sounding drums, favorite brand of all time. When did you discover them? Because they're kind of a rare drum to find. You know, it, it was probably four, I don't know, four or five years ago. I got like the first Camco kit. And like you hear like, oh yeah, I can't. But it was just different. It's, hmm. they, ha they sound like I want drums to sound. Um, they kind of like have the perfect balance of like warmth and resonance and volume. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of all, all rolled into one. Where would you put them on like 
Because I think of Slingerland being the deadest, right? Would that be a the fair? The dentist? Deadest, like the most dead. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, so I, they're probably most similar to like a Cleveland era Rodgers, I think, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Because, um, you know, that era Rodgers is kind of like, man, it just sounds so rich and, and like not too much resonant, but like just very lively and, you know, the drums will do exactly, you'll touch it and you can just hear like, do exactly what you want them to do. Um, they're unique, they have the turret style lugs, which is like probably the most unique lug style. Mm -hmm. Very noticeable. People, I have a personal Camco kit I keep here. People come in and, is that a DW? And like, explain, no, that's a Camco. They preceded DW. Right, right. Um, and DW is popular in its own right, so. Yeah, so DW bought Camco, right? At least the, the the tooling for all this So stuff? DW and Tama both bought Camco. Right, and they divided Like, kind of like, I think it was DW bought all, like, the tooling and the, the machining, and then, like, the shells might have went. I don't know exactly. There's kind of some debate over that. Camco factories, there was Oaklawn, there was uh, Chanute, which is in Kansas, and then there was LA. So LA was, like, before Camco was bought by DW. So this was this is like almost like a George Weyer-ish kit. Mm -hmm. um, it's got like a, the fatter rig rings. I think these are four-ply shells. Um, George Weyer preceded Camco. We'll talk about that in another podcast. Um, a lot of original parts on these. Camcos are special. These are um, brass hoops, and they're kind of like a rolled, oh, taller yeah. hoop. They're really, really good. A lot of kits are missing, missing those. Um, they use like big old fat uh, tension rod washers. A lot of those are on this kit. Um, I'm trying to think what else. It's got a f quote-unquote factory rod Ludwig symbol mount on there. When oh, I say really? factory, yeah, you know, it was probably ordered to the drum shop and the customer asked to have symbol mount added. So they added it on there. Did they always use a rail mount or was there any other option? You know? um, I think that that was standard for the, the like, uh, Oakland era. My LA kit has kind of like a, a diamond mount on it which would break pretty often. Mm. Um, I think that this is a spade, yeah. The mufflers on these drums are really weird. I can't show them to you because they're all missing. They were like, <laughs> uh, they're placed a lot farther down on the drum and then there's like a kind of, uh, I can't remember what, the, what they call them, but you twist this knob and then it actually like screws in and out of the muffler. It doesn't work very well, mm. <laughs> um, but they're all missing. You can see how low it is on, on the, the snare drum there. Oh, yeah. Uh, these are called aristocrat lugs. They also made another lug called a tuxedo lug, which is like kind of longer. These ones are more popular, in my opinion. This is missing the micro adjuster. In this part, the throw off part works, but this is all just gone. The funny thing is, G George Way is not as desirable as Camco. I would have think it would be the other way. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's because of the shells or whatever. I've never played a George Way kit, but you know, the, this is like the cream of the crop. Like we were talking about how this compares to my LA kit. They're similar, but like these are more musical to me. Mm -hmm. And I think like so are Rogers drums, which I think is kind of what makes them so special. Um, and I think once they went to the Chanute factor, there might be there might have been some QC errors and issues. I think I had a, a, a Chanute kit, and one of the edges was like mega flat on it, but it sounded amazing. And this Black Diamond Pearl is very different than the one we looked at. It kind of looks like Slingerland in a way. Mm. Kind of like a bigger flake. 
There's some fade on the bass drum, not too bad. And also, you know, one of the things that drum uh, stores would do back in the day is they'd put their tag underneath the badge. Oh, yeah. So that's what that residue's from. Some, I've seen them where they actually screwed the badge in. That bothers some people. I think it's kind of a neat, neat piece of history. All right, let's get to a few of your listener questions. If you have any questions that you'd like me to answer or maybe farm out to someone else to answer, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, the first one here. Eric McKnight, um, how do you keep your drum kitten so clean? I hate dusting under any circumstances. Under compulsion, I can make an attempt at flat surfaces like tabletops and windowsills, but my drums, forget about it. So what's your secret? There's no secret, Eric. I don't dust often either. I vacuum my studio maybe once every few months. Um, I don't clean my drums or cymbals ever. It's all about lighting. If you overexpose just a little bit, the drums just look super clean. The heads look super white. The cymbals are shiny. The shells are crisp. But I'm sure there's dust all over these drums. So that's the secret. It's just good lighting. Here's one from Tobias. Tobias says, I started playing with a 70s, 80s rock cover band, and they have their own practice space. Their last drummer used an E-kit straight into the mixing board. Um, with my acoustic kit, I use in-ears to save my hearing and get a signal from the mixing board so I can hear the other instruments properly. With certain songs, I can't hear myself enough, though. So I'm searching for an affordable mic to capture my kit. We usually play smaller clubs or weddings where I don't need amplification on stage, but it wouldn't hurt if the mics could be used for slightly bigger venues as well. Should I use one or two overheads, a kick, and one mic somewhere behind me? Any other ideas? Good question. Um, the first thing I would recommend is the Yamaha EAD-10 because it, it'll capture your whole kit in a nice, even blend. It's simple. You just hook it right onto your bass drum shell, uh, your bass drum hoop. It's got some effects parameters. So you can dial in some compression or some reverb to make it feel kind of more studio quality. And you can also send the feed from the mixing board into the EAD-10 and use it as a monitor mixer as well. You just need to get the adapter for the, um, the eighth inch input. But I would consider that first. And then what I'm doing currently, um, I play in a, like a swing Motown band. We, I have a little four channel mixer I get a feed from from the main PA that goes into channel one. That gives me everyone's mix, the vocals and keys and all that. And then I just take an SM57 in the second channel and just lay it down by the, I guess it's the right spur of the bass drum, either aimed more at the drum to get more of me, or I also use it to aim at where the horns are because they're not in my monitors. So I'm getting a mix of kind of like stage sound with heavy emphasis on the drums because it's so close to the bass drum. And then I can just blend the two. I can blend in the PA mix with the mix I'm getting from that little, that 57 on the floor. And it really just feels like naturally what everything sounds like on the stage if I took my ears out. So you might want to try that. You could even do two, put one on the left and right. I wouldn't necessarily go overheads unless you're trying to, I just wouldn't go there because it's, it's, it's troubling, in my experience, especially if you play outside. Um, so it just depends on what you need to do. If you really need to mic the drums for the, the house PA, that's the whole other thing. But then you could just get that included in your inner mix that comes back to you. So try that Yamaha E8010, or just throw a one or two fifty sevens 
on the floor close to the drums. Put them on a towel or something and see if that helps. Okay, we are at the end of the episode, which means it's time for the warehouse pick of the week. This week, I want to call your attention to, we have some grab bag specials over at drumfactorydirect.com. It's a bunch of um, maybe overstock items or or discontinued items that we have just bundled into some packages with, you know, to make it a few lugs and some various other things. So just go check them out. There might be something there that has some some bits and pieces that you need um, at a pretty incredible price. So you can just search grab bags on drumfactorydirect.com. All right, that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you're getting this show. Um, drop us a five-star rating, get some words in the review. That does a lot to get this show ranking higher so more drummers can find it. Um, always appreciate you. You can always reach us at drumcandypodcast at gmail.com or you can DM me at Mike Dawson Drums or at the Drum Factor Direct um, Instagram page. Yeah, that's it. So let's hand it back over to Eddie to send us out. See you next week.